Coming up on today's show... I, at the time, had a deal with a record company in New Orleans. I had been going down there to play and meeting a bunch of musicians in that part of the world. And so here this storm comes in and pretty much took out my label. Welcome to another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment, featuring interviews with guests who are having success in entertainment, primarily music. I am Bruce Wozniak, talking to guests who are singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, and more from the worldwide music community. Be sure you are on the list for the weekly e-newsletter I only send out on Wednesday when a new episode of this show comes out, so make sure you're signed up to receive that for free to your inbox. If you're not already getting it, go to my podcast website, nhte.net, and pop your email address into the sign-up box. I do publish exclusives in there from time to time, so don't miss out. I love hearing from listeners of this show. You can write to podcast at nhte.net, or instead of email, you are welcome to DM me through the at Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Nashville, my guest has been called a musician's musician. He has become known as the Nashville guitar guru for his work as a teacher and coach to professional performers, hit songwriters, and the next generation of Nashville's rising stars. Six months ago, he released an album of 12 instrumental tracks, and now he's getting ready to release an online guitar course series. In 2019, he put out a book called The Perpetual Beginner, A Musician's Path to Lifelong Learning. On the performance side, he has rocked a muddy crowd at Woodstock and played the blues with Les Paul on a Manhattan nightclub stage. You've been hearing a song of his called Pulse. Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Dave Isaacs. Thank you for having me. You bet, Dave. Wow, there's actually more that you've done that I could have added to that intro, so we've got a lot to cover today. <laughs> sure. But first, let's start by having you share with the audience about the song of yours that was just playing called Pulse. Um, Pulse is from an album called Songs Without Words, and the music was all written as solo guitar music, and there's a whole story behind this that uh, we may get into more deeply, but what was really interesting about this project is that it's the first time that I wrote guitar parts and then put a band around it. Because ordinarily, I'm a very reactive player. So when I write a song, there tends to be something of a skeleton. And then as we develop it with the musicians, I'm exploring myself and finding what that is. So this was really a composed project and then bringing in other music around it and this particular track was fun because I got to do this with a couple of uh, longtime friends of mine here in Nashville, uh, Brooke Sutton and Robert Crawford, who run a studio called The Studio Nashville. Excellent uh, facility. And the great thing about it is there's a big open room and you can set up, you can pretend it's 1972 and just set up in a room facing each other and playing together mm. instead of doing this sort of more common Nashville model of recording, which is where everybody is isolated. Yeah. And so you're interacting like jazz musicians in the moment. And actually, the studio is really uh, used a lot by the jazz community, um, which there is one here in Nashville. 
um, because of that, because it's kind of a different approach, but to reactive musicians, it's a great way to go. So it, the guitar part itself was written, performed that with the bass and drums, and then we went back and overlaid. Uh, the drummer did some more percussion. I played some keyboards. And so there was the open-ended interacting part that was built around the controlled part, the, the pre-composed. So that was a new experience for me, and it was really fun. But talk to me about the way that this came together, because what is this about sheet music that I think? Yes, yes. Yeah, is kind of like the, uh, you know, what what came first. And in this case, I'm fascinated because I don't know that, my gosh, this is really bizarre. In more than nine years of doing this show every week, I don't know that I've ever heard someone do what you did here. Describe <laughs> to the audience what I'm referring to. Okay, well... I wrote the music as guitar music with the intent of releasing it as a set of studies. In other words, music that's written to be listened to, but also to be performed by a student as part of a learning process, because I am a teacher and that's my, my primary livelihood in music is teaching and coaching. And I've also always wanted to write a set of solo guitar pieces. I've dabbled in things over the years but a few years back, really at the beginning of the pandemic, as everything withdrew and we all found ourselves home with time to do things we hadn't had time to do, and I picked up a nylon string guitar and started practicing the music I was playing as a freshman in college when I was a classical guitar major. And I hadn't touched that stuff in 25 years. Hmm. Um, it was just not part of the musical world that I work in. Every now and again, I would have a student who would be interested. But for the most part, um, it's a very, you know, the classical guitar world is a beautiful, fantastic world, but it's a very narrow segment of the music world. And it doesn't overlap much with pop music. So this was purely a personal indulgence just because I love the sound and the feel of a classical guitar. But I really didn't have the skills that I would have had when I was 25 and spending hours and hours a day practicing that music. Hmm. So my pandemic project was to go back to freshman year and taking these tiny little baby steps and playing through my first year repertoire. In the course of doing that, maybe a year, year and a half later, I started in my warm-ups writing little, just keep, keeping track of ideas. Mm. And there is a, and this is maybe a grandiose notion, because <laughs> this is me wanting to be a composer, and you can picture the air quotes there. <laughs> but like I always, so when I was a student, and I, I still have all of this stuff, these collections of guitar music and these nice little books with the sheet music and everything, and it's kind of an archaic skill because a lot of musicians don't learn to read notes anymore. Um, and in pop music, most never did. But because it ties in with my teaching work and just because it was really sort of documenting my own process, like I wrote this music while I was learning how to play in this style. Hmm. And so I put it out as a sheet music book, which is backwards because what most people do is they put out the album and if there's an interest in the music then they put out the sheet music yeah. so people can play it <laughs> i put out the music first and went through this uh, over the course of about a year i did a digital release first so it was only available online through a, a sheet music retailer i hadn't had an exclusive with them 
and then put out the book itself, which had some arty little touches to it and photographs and the layout and making it look nice and everything. So because I think a book is a piece of art and then went into the studio with these 12 pieces. And there are 12 of them because in the sort of tradition in classical music, when a composer writes these exercises, there's some way to tie them together. So there's one for each of the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. Mm. So it's kind of a grandiose thing for me to say, look at me, I'm a composer, even though you don't know who I am, or what any of this sounds like. So, I mean, in, in retrospect, the from the business side of it, um, the album itself was sort of the end of this long buildup and maybe in some ways it may, would have made more sense to do it the other way, but it didn't exist the other way. But I wonder, though, was that by design from day one? Was that a strategy that you said, well, if I do this and then I do this and then I do this? Or was it, you know what, Bruce, I did the sheet music and later on realized like, hey, why don't I just progress from here? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that the idea of doing it as a sort of multi-pronged project was something that was in my head from the beginning, but I can't say I was planning on doing an album or that I knew how I was going to do it in combining the composed and the improvised parts of it. Interesting. Interesting. Hmm. Well, I know we're going to dive into a lot of guitar talk, but let's first clarify that you actually teach piano too, am I right? Plus you even serve as a musical mentor as well. Yes. I do, yeah. I mean, my when I started off teaching, it was like most people who do, just another way to make some money involving music. And I've played piano my whole life. I'm a much more skilled guitarist than I am pianist, but I can put a song across. I use it as a compositional tool. I spent enough time playing classical piano and jazz piano to get some, some basic chops. And... So where I use it now is mostly if I'm working with creative people, either as an illustration of music theory or another way to approach working out a song. So most of my piano teaching is what I would call songwriter piano. Mm, Okay. So it's um, foundational in the sense that you're playing the song in basically its simplest form. There's certainly I have one Jerry Lee Lewis lick. And it doesn't it doesn't fit into everything. <laughs> so it's part of the picture. And I mean, every schooled musician is expected to develop some keyboard facility. Hmm. And I love a piano. I mean, I I am convinced that the reason that I took to playing music in the first place is that I like the tactile experience of playing instruments you hit hmm. a guitar, a keyboard. Um, I don't have a drum set, but one of these days I will. <laughs> and uh, th- there is something about the physicality of it. I mean, I had a teacher who said to me once, you know, if it weren't for the fact that you need your hands, you taking up boxing would be so great for you. <laughs> and, and what she meant was just the, the tactile aspect of, and I remember in high school, like I wrestled some, you know, and I was not an athletic kid at all, mm-hmm. but just something about the, the physicality of it, whereas when I played the flute for six months in fifth grade band, I didn't take to it at all. Mm. It just, there was nothing satisfying about it. Interesting. You know, granted, when you pick up a guitar at 14, you instantly become cooler than you were before <laughs> you picked it up. You know, like whether you can play it or not. So there is that. But in, you know, in retrospect, having spent so many years teaching and working with people and seeing their sort of first 
steps with it, there are people that are immediately comfortable physically Hmm. and just respond to it. And I really think that's a big part of it. I've got this whole sort of unified field theory of teaching music that's been percolating in my head for a while. (laughs) And it has a lot to do with that aspect of it. Just, you know, making your body interact with this thing. Hmm. Yeah. So I, I love piano for that reason. Yeah, that's very different. It's it's a unique perspective. Usually I do the following question just for fun, but I think it's going to help as our conversation unfolds for the audience to have some perspective as it relates to all the different hats that you wear. What I'm getting at is in the intro, I mentioned the album you put out six months ago, which was your 12th album. You yes. are a performing artist, too. And have yes. played in venues across the U.S. from small clubs to festivals and concert halls. Plus, you are a songwriter. You're by all means a teacher. So is there a clear-cut order for all those? Like, I'm a teacher first, a recording artist second, a songwriter third, a touring performer fourth, etc. Or is it no? <laughs> There's no order, Bruce. They all just play off each other and are interwoven. That's a great question because over the last few years... Uh, I've had numerous conversations with people about this topic. Mm. So the albums over the years, like 20 years ago when I started doing this, I put out my first album in 1997. And that was, I had a band, I wrote some songs, we went and recorded and released the album. And I was teaching, I had a neighborhood music teaching practice, but that was another source of ancillary income. And I put out, I guess one, two, three, four, five albums before moving to Nashville in 2005. And the irony is that coming to Nashville really started the process of my pulling away from being a working, gigging musician and into more of the the creative side in the way that I approach it now, which comes out through teaching. So If you were to ask me what I put first, I would say I'm a musician first. I am a teacher and a coach by both livelihood and I would say by calling. Mm -hmm. And then I am a songwriter and performing artist because that is something that I do. And when that isn't happening in my life, there is something missing. Mm. And I mean, the the performing artist part is interesting because in relating back to what I said earlier about the physicality of it, you know, I was a I would say I was a nervous kid and guitar gave me a place to put nervous energy that was productive and safe Mm. and not self-destructive. And when, you know, when I first started performing, I was as terrified as anybody else. But then you realize that on a stage, there are no rules. People get on a stage and they perform the way they perform. So you are actually completely free to just be yourself. Mm. And I am not one of those people that gets on a stage and lives for the interaction, the eye contact with people, the... I, for many years, learned how to just look past the audience at the lights. <laughs> it was like they weren't there because it's almost like I am going to go into this state and you are going to participate. You are going to watch me do this. So the the performing is also part of that physical, energetic experience. Um, it also ultimately is where I get a good bit of my exercise because I realized 
when the pandemic hit and suddenly I wasn't out performing, you know, say three nights a week. And even if those performances were 15, 20 minutes, I get pretty intense. My performances are pretty aerobic. So when that stopped and it's like, gee, I did just gain 15 pounds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, wow. wow. I'm not burnt off this, this energy. So, wow. I mean, I, I think what I mentioned the moving to Nashville part as part of this because Nashville is a fantastic place to be a musician because there are so many here. And even setting aside the industry aspects of things, it's a wonderful place to be part of a, a pool and a community of creative people. And that was very stimulating in itself. But what I felt, it, Nashville also likes you to pick a lane. It's a specialist's town in a lot of ways. So when I moved to town and people said, what did you come here to do? Are you a writer? Are you a performer? Mm -hmm. And there was this list of boxes to check. And I said, well, can I be all of those things? And the answer ultimately is that you can't all at the same time and with the same degree of, of success and intensity. And the lane that I fell into was teaching because it was the area where Anytime I put the effort into it, doors just opened. Hmm, interesting. And one starts to feel like, like I remember reading a, uh, a business book, and I don't remember which one it was, but the basic premise of if you're deciding what you are going to do with yourself professionally, you have to ask yourself, can I make money doing this? <laughs> can I be happy doing this? And am I better at doing this than other people? Hmm. And I started hearing from people again and again, you have a different perspective. You do this differently. Uh, no one has things that you say. And it became very clear that when I look at those three things, I can check all three of those boxes. As a performer, the part that you can't ever get past is that you can be completely great and undeniably great at what you do, but there is still the subjective element of taste mm. there is still the element of right place right time yeah. and there's also to be honest the degree of commitment that i don't think i understood when i moved here when i came here i considered myself a professional musician like i said i'd put out five albums i'd been on tour i had done some of these the woodstock thing was part of that the les paul thing was part of that so this is all what i was doing but then you meet people that are just 100% committed, the people who only want to write songs, and so they're holding their shoes together with duct tape, because <laughs> this is how, and, and again, there, there is a whole thing about artistic people in poverty and a mindset that we hold ourselves in, and that's, I read those business books for a reason, because I was tired of starving, <laughs> but, you know, there, you, you do realize that when someone picks a lane, that there is a degree of intensity that you can dive into that you just can't do otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there was a happenstance, which is that in 2008, when everything uh, economically kind of went to hell at the same time, my wife got laid off from a corporate job and I had a band that I had been 100% devoted to for two years, completely fall apart, dead in the water. Mm. It was like, all of a sudden, there's no band. I have 3,000 CDs in the garage. Hmm. <laughs> and, and there's nothing happening here. 
And literally the next day, I got a call offering me to teach a music theory class at one of the local colleges. Whoa, whoa. And it was for a private institution that was offering benefits to part-timers. Mm. So I got health insurance from teaching one class. So wow. this was a no-brainer because yeah. my wife had lost her corporate thing. And that led to a second class and a third class and then another part-time job at another school at Tennessee State University mm -hmm. who then offered a full-time job. Okay, let me jump in here for a minute because I want to back up to something before we go further into all the teaching yes. stuff because, you know— there is the whole songwriting community in Nashville. And when you were answering my question about you do also teach piano and you are a musical mentor and you talked about the extent to which you play piano, I was thinking in my head of the songwriter who is really struggling with a song and then someone comes along and says, why don't you try writing it on piano? And they go, oh my gosh, yes. You know, you're, you're sitting in a right, you know, for hours and hours and everyone's scratching their head going, why doesn't, why isn't this song working? It should. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, because you then, the next question I asked you, I was paying close attention. You put songwriter third on your list of what do you consider yourself? <laughs> for? And so what I'm, I'm, I'm going a long way to, to drive at the question of, do you ever wear the hat of today I have a right scheduled and I'm going to be one of those people in the songwriting community here in Nashville where, yeah, like I do a lot of those sessions, Bruce, or is it, no, I, I'm, if I'm writing, it's for my own projects. I'm not trying to do co-writes all over town. Um, that's a good question. It was an evolution. When I first came to town, I dove right in because I wanted to learn more about songwriting. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time in co-writing sessions, which does involve sometimes sitting in a room and staring at each other over a table and having nothing to say. Um, you come to learn after a while that you want to hang out with somebody first before you try to write a song. Because if you can hang out in a room for three hours and enjoy each other's company, you can write a song. Um, and it's also uh, recognizing what one brings to the table. So I'm bringing a wider musical vocabulary than the average person who mm. walks into a writing session. But I am not the person who's coming in with three notebooks full of lyrical ideas. Uh. So I like to find those people. Um, I really like songwriting, but I find it terribly hard. Mm. I find it very frustrating. And I find it, honestly, more than a little scary um, because... It, you can stay on a superficial level and write stuff that's witty or clever or fun and all of that's great. But to really tap into something real takes really revealing something of yourself in this room with someone who might be a stranger. Who might, so it's, it, it takes some real digging. And I will say that over the last few years, I have done less of the sit in a room and write uh -huh. because the the role that I do best is a ranger taking the pieces and what if we put them in this order? What you said about what if we do this on piano? That kind of thing. It's taking the ideas and saying, okay, if we approach this from another perspective, what if we move this here and that there? But I'm still amazed nonetheless, though, that this is a guy who has put out 12 albums and is sitting here saying, I'm not really, songwriting is not is not my, my number one talent. You've obviously done enough of it that you've been able to, to crank out 12 albums over the years. Yeah. 
Well, and one develops more and more skill in the craft, which I really have learned here in Nashville. And you did say something which is true, which is when I'm writing, I really am writing for myself, but I still like co-writing a lot because I like the energy hmm. with people. But the the thing that's that's really happened is I have really wide musical interests, but in terms of what I'm going to perform at this point, I've gotten pretty clear about what I feel good about and what's authentic for me. And given that I am not really um, in the side of the business where I am pitching songs for other people to record, mm -hmm. then if we're working on something together, I want to know that somebody's going to sing it and I would just assume that somebody be me. Oh. So the people who are cranking out two and 300 songs a year, yeah. And I know quite a few of these. Um, many of them are doing very well in getting songs placed in film and TV and getting artists to record them. That's a whole universe in itself that one has to spend time in. Right. And then stylistically, you are looking to fit the, the pitch. You're writing a certain kind of song. Sometimes someone will have an artist in mind or a particular target for it. And that's great. And that's, a, that's an enjoyable thing to be part of. But it's two or three steps down the line in terms of my universe. Okay. So I am friendly with lots of people who are doing that kind of thing. And when those people call me, it's usually because there is a particular um, musical vocabulary or musical perspective uh, that they're looking Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So it you you find your people that you connect with the most and i've i've had several i would say very successful long-term co-writing relationships people i've known for 10 and 15 years nice nice and written multiple songs with okay so then as we circle back to teaching i want to get a little housekeeping out of the way first before i really get into the meat and potatoes type questions just logistically speaking what are we talking about in terms of teaching as far as who can learn from you? Where do you teach? Is it at your house? Is it at a studio? Are you accepting new learners? If so, how do people reach you to inquire and so forth? Okay. The core of my teaching is still giving guitar lessons. I do have absolute beginners that I teach. I do work mostly with adults, though. And the niche that I have settled into primarily, although I don't ever turn anybody away, hmm. Um, the niche that I have settled into mostly or the people that have gravitated to me are adults with more experience than skill or more enthusiasm than skill, because I'm pretty convinced that if you look at the uh, the demographic of who buys guitars, that's a very large percentage, a very large percentage of people who play have played for a while and gotten to some degree of competence, but hit some kind of a wall, because most people do. And the approach that I have seems to work very well with that. I don't really teach kids much anymore. That's what I used to do years ago. And so now it's become more specialized. So if someone comes to me and they just say, I want to learn how to play the guitar, then I'm giving them basically traditional guitar lessons. But there's also 10,000 other people they could call to do that. Whereas the the part where I'm coming from, which is really learning how to interact with this instrument and be creative with it, and also how to develop a learning process. Mm. 
Um, I find that kind of work very gratifying to do. And so it, uh, it definitely serves the long-term adult learner best because that's an area that I think I said to somebody yesterday in a lesson, if a general practitioner sees the same symptoms over and over and over again in all his patients, he's going to start looking at environmental factors, Ah. right? So this is kind of the way that I approach my teaching because most people come to me with the same problems. Okay. So in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about the online guitar course series that you're going to launch. But for right now, is everything that you're talking about, is this in person in Nashville or can people do it over Zoom? And like I said before, is it your house? Is it your studio? And, and how can people reach you to inquire about more information? Okay. I work both in person and over Zoom. I share a studio in Nashville with a friend of mine who coaches voice and who's wonderful. Her name is Liz Johnson, and I can't recommend her enough. And uh, I also teach via Zoom from my home studio. And when the pandemic hit, everything went online and my business went through the roof for a Mm. while because there was such an interest. People are home looking for something to do. So it really blew up, and now it's back to about 50-50 between online and in-person. And I like that balance because some people, first of all, just don't do well with online. They really do need to be in the room with you. Mm -hmm. And also, it's in a lot of ways, you know, we all need the human interaction. So sitting with somebody in person is a different experience than working online. Um, But... As I said, I've done so much of it, and I've done it for many years. I started teaching over Skype in 2010. Wow. So um, I've learned a lot about how to make the experience flow, how to make up for the shortcomings of not being in the room, and how we can use the technology as an aid, because I can put something right in front of you on your screen and send you an audio file that you can play and uh, show you on video what I'm what I'm doing. Wow. So there's a lot of resources. Wow. As far as how to find me, NashvilleGuitarGuru.com is my website, and all my socials are also Nashville Guitar Guru, and all my contact information is on there. And folks, here's where things get interesting. Dave says that people struggle to learn to play as adults because they still try to approach it like a kid taking music lessons. Explain that to the audience, Dave. When you send your eight-year-old for music lessons, the expectation is they're going to come in, they're going to get an assignment, they're going to go home and come back the next week and play it. There is an expectation that that kid is entering into a process and a pipeline that when they come out, let's just say for argument's sake, this is an eight-year-old that starts lessons and maybe they're going to continue through high school, maybe they're not. But You are starting someone at the beginning and saying, here are the fundamentals. We're going to give you this foundation. You don't have to understand how this works. You're going to trust me because you're a kid. I'm the teacher. And eventually (laughs) this will make sense to you. Right. The difference in learning as an adult is that, number one, you really have a much harder time with that. Just having faith that it's going to make sense down the road. Now, Mm. of course, With an eight-year-old, you still have to give them something concrete to do, obviously. You have to be more concrete with a kid. You can't be conceptual in the way that you can with an adult. But there, there is this sort of submitting to the process. Come in for your lesson, play your assignment, go on to the next one. The average adult is not going to do it that way. Because first of all, most people 
if they have one thing to practice, it's probably not enough to move them forward. They also don't have their whole lives to go through this building process. Um, and then I think about when I went to music school, my first year, you'd have these rudiments classes, three days a week, two hours a day, plus homework. And then you've got the next four or six or eight years of intensive experience in applying this information. Well, the adult student is not going to be able to do that intensive deep dive at the beginning and doesn't have the luxury of all of this work where you practice applying it. So what happens is someone goes for a lesson, they get thrown a bunch of information, now they have a ton of data and very, very limited experience in how to apply it because you've got the one thing maybe you were given to practice. Mm -hmm. And you can, even if you get that perfect, it's not enough because that one thing has to be a springboard to something else. So the difference in what I do is that I, my message to people is you don't have to know how to do everything. It is wonderful if you can build those well-rounded, solid foundations if you have the time to do that. But an awful lot of the people we grew up listening to didn't have that either. They picked a lane, they got inspired by something, and they just chased it. And so what I tell people is as an adult, your enthusiasm and your interest in what you're doing is the most important thing no matter what. Mm. Because that sustains you through the challenge of not being able to do something the way you want to do it. You have to find where do I get the satisfaction in this now? Yeah, I like that. I like that. And I think an example that will help the audience really kind of see this very clearly is I had a client one time who told me that she was going to someone for vocal lessons, but that he wasn't helping her with technique. He would just give her different songs to try out. It was as if he was wanting to teach her how to sing those songs as opposed to working with her to become a better vocalist. And I love this quote that I found from someone who said, quote, other guitar teachers I've had teach you to play songs. Dave teaches you to play guitar, end quote. So I can totally see the difference. Yeah. And that's that's important. And the other side of it is that some people come in with the expectation, well, what's this week's song? Uh. And that, I think, to me, is getting back to the kid music lesson model, whereas the way that I like to have people do it is say, anytime I teach you a song, it's not about the song. It's an example of something. And there are going to be 20 more songs that use this same whatever musical um, element device that I'm pointing out to you. Maybe it's the rhythm, maybe it's the chords, but you know, we, I, I just read a whole article about the, uh, Ed Sheeran, uh, Marvin Gaye estate yeah. lawsuit, um, which went into, you know, into depth about, you know, cause this is what the whole case was based on is how do you quantify what belongs to X, what belongs to Y and can somebody own these discrete musical elements and the, yeah. The standard is that, well, no, you can't. No one owns a G chord. Um, so that, you know, the, what I tell people is you need to do what I do, which is I am always looking for something that's going to light me up and get me excited. And I would not be able to still do this if I couldn't pull up a song that maybe I heard for the first time 40 years ago. And I have even played, but I can still listen to and go, 
ooh, I never noticed that before. Mm. And now I'm going to do a deep dive on figuring out what that is. And if I can't do it, I have a process through which I learn how. And so what I say to my students is, you may not be doing this at the level, technically, that I am, and you're not doing it nearly as fast, but it's the same in that you find something that that is exciting or appealing in some way, and then we're approaching essentially a a mechanical problem, which is get your fingers to this place. And so we're looking for the mechanical solution. How, if my hands can't do this, what is it that's in the way? And again, back to the kid, to the kid, why can't you play it? Well, I'm just not good enough yet. And maybe that's true with the 45-year-old that's owned a guitar for 25 years. Mm -hmm. But very, very frequently, it's just that there is something physical in the way they're approaching it and it could be a a learned bad habit Mm. or it could have been bad advice or just something that wasn't processed right or didn't connect or whatever it is or it was just never mentioned and we tweak somebody's hand or sit up or breathe Mm. here and so you know i'm always looking for what is the the obstacle and that's the approach that i use in my own playing Wow. And when I describe this to a friend of mine who is actually a recording engineer, but also has um, legitimate engineering training. And he said, you know, what you're describing is the way you would solve any engineering problem. Mm. So it's and it's a process, in other words. Yeah. And yeah. so the the technical skill doesn't really matter. So if someone says, well, I want to play blues guitar like Stevie Ray Vaughan, like, okay, great, but can you lay down a groove like John Lee Hooker, who would play one chord for the whole song? (laughs) Well, he was still John Lee Hooker. Like, wouldn't you be happy if you could convincingly do that? And people say, yeah. Well said. Well said. I'm joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from Nashville by guitarist, songwriter, recording artist, and teacher Dave Isaacs. Visit his official website at NashvilleGuitarGuru.com. I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, NHTE.net. Stay tuned because you'll be hearing him talk about his online guitar course series that he's getting ready to launch and how you can access that. You heard him talking about the in-person teaching that he does, also available through Zoom. Plus, look on his website as well for his book, which I will be asking him about shortly. Of course, do look for Dave's original music on Apple Music and other online digital music retailers. He is on Spotify, too, so give him a follow on there. Look for links on NashvilleGuitarGuru.com to find Dave on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. I wrote about this in the weekly e-newsletter, and I posted about it on the Instagram account for this podcast, but I don't think I've actually said it on an NHTE episode. For those of you that listen to this show through Spotify, look below the episode description for where it says Q&A, followed right underneath that by what did you think about this episode and a reply button so you can send feedback directly to me through their app. I would love to get your thoughts that way. So if you're listening through Spotify, please take a moment to utilize that feature. Dave, let's hear all about the online guitar course series that you're about to release. Okay. I have been designing online guitar courses for 10 years 
for hire for other companies. Uh-huh. And so there's quite a bit that's out there. That, and this is the kind of thing where I basically would be given an assignment, um, do a course on this. I would go and the whoever I'm working for is going to handle the shooting, the production and all of that. This is the first time that I am looking to create these myself. I've had a YouTube channel for a bunch of years. And so I would do one-off lesson videos and things like that. But this is what I said earlier about getting back to real fundamentals. This is something that I have seen such a need for. And so it's a course on strumming, but it's taking the approach that most people, when they start learning how to play songs, are looking for what they will call the strum pattern, which is go down, go up, go down, go up. And it's not a particularly musical way to think, but it's a good shortcut. Lots of the things that we use, particularly in the internet guitar world, really are just shortcuts so you can communicate something simply. But along with that, down and up is also a steady flowing movement. Because when you watch somebody strumming a guitar, you tend to see that strumming hand stay in motion, even if you're not hearing that hand hit the strings every time. So there's a dance that's going on, and the movement of your hand is actually keeping time, like marking out the beat of the song. And so this course starts with movement and getting back to the engineering idea, looking at the body and saying, the body is a mechanical construct that operates under a particular logic, And so when you bring an instrument into that, we just want to stay as close as we can to the way the body is supposed to move in the in the first place. And my one of my big hypotheses is that because so many people are learning online now, that there is an aspect of the physicality that's easy to miss because you're not sitting with somebody in the room, Mm -hmm. but also just because guitar to begin with is putting all your attention at your fingertips. So it's easy for the rest of your body to just disappear Mm -hmm. from your mental picture and then add looking at a screen to that. And basically all of your brain power is out in front of you and not actually you're not feeling what your hands are doing and i've come to observe this disconnect where i'll ask somebody to move and it'll be something just like okay now move your arm down and it doesn't happen or i'll I'll say okay strum it now strum it softly and they'll strum it softly but it's not any softer it's the same Mm. so the command from the brain isn't getting to the fingers wow Wow. So there, there's a disconnect between the actual experience of what's happening, what you feel and hear, and what you intended to do. But when you go back to thinking about an inherently musical person, the people we call talented, I don't think they have that same problem because what they're willing to do, and this is definitely what I did as a teenager, is they just try this. What happens if? Well, what mm. happens if I do that? Mm-hmm. If you wait to be told what to do, you'll never do this. Mm. And of course, at some point, you do have to decide, I'm going to focus in on polishing this if you want to be able to play one song. But the action of just saying, I am coordinating a movement in time and it makes a sound, which is so fundamental <laughs> and seems like it's, well, how is someone going to be, how is that going to be enjoyable? 
but you know, I can play one chord or two or three notes and feel that there's music in there. Yeah, yeah. So when is this Guitar Course series going to be released, and is it safe to assume that it will just be a part of the NashvilleGuitarGuru.com website? It will, yes. It will be certainly connected to the NashvilleGuitarGuru.com website. It probably will be hosted on one of the online course platforms. Uh Um, Pretty sure it's going to be on Teachable, but um, whatever is on the website will link to... Uh, to one of those. So that way I don't have to worry about the delivery. Last year or let's say last 18 months, I've done five online courses where I scheduled out a six week block on Zoom Mm -hmm. on Saturday mornings and got people to sign up for it and then recorded everything Ah. so that you have in a Dropbox the lesson videos from the actual Zoom session and then whatever prep I did and exercises. Um, And so that combined with the previous experience I had of designing for other people, really refined a lot of ideas. So this was the first time that I've sat down and said, okay, I'm going to hire a videographer. I'm going to sit down and just teach this whole business. I'll put it together myself and make it available. And it's, it's an area that I want to develop more of, honestly, because it's from a business perspective, it is a good way to go. Um, I look at the next 20 years of my life and things like passive income um, are important as far as, you know, being able to, you know, move ahead into some kind of decent (laughs) older part of my life. And um, it's also a way for me to put out these ideas in more and more distilled ways, because the more I do it, the more coherent the ideas get. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. So when will this be out, this online guitar course series that we're talking about? It, it'll be, the, um, I'm thinking fall. I'm thinking September. Ah, okay, okay. Well, I do want to also give you a chance to talk about your 2019 book called The Perpetual Beginner, A Musician's Path to Lifelong Learning. Now, this was a really fun thing to do, partly because it was a, a lifelong desire. I've always wanted to write a book. And kind of like I said, I always wanted to put out a collection of music. So now I'm a composer. Well, now I'm an author. Right. (laughs) But it was very much um, it's funny because I wanted to do this for a long time. And I spoke in 2016 at the National Songwriters Association International Conference. They do a thing called Song Camp every summer. And I gave a talk to Song Camp. I ended up having lunch that day with two people who came up to me afterwards. One of them is an author. One of them was a book publicist. Mm. And in the course of that lunch, not only did I decide I was ready to do this, but they both told me, we will coach you through this process. Wow. And it felt like, well, this is a, (laughs) I'd be a fool to not run with this. And so it really was very, very helpful because I had professional guidance all the way through on how to put it together. And I did a GoFundMe so that I could hire a professional designer and a professional editor and Uh. really do this right. And it came out as what I'm going to call an instructional memoir because I'm telling stories about my own experience when I was a teenager, when I was a student, um, college, post-college, and spotlighting particular interactions with particular people that made 
a lasting impact. So I can point to a workshop I went to in 1987 where I learned things that I still use every day. Ah, okay. Wow. Wow, that's a cool approach. And, you know, one of the things that that, that lunchtime conversation um, did for me was my thought was, you know, I had had this idea before, but, well, no one knows who I am. Why do they want, why do they care about my story? Mm-hmm. And in the course of this conversation, they convinced me, well, all you have to do is tell your story well <laughs> and tell it in a way that relates to the purpose of the book. And so each chapter of the book starts with an anecdote. And then builds on, here's what my musical lesson was, and then goes to, here's how this is relevant to you and how mm, you can apply it. I like it. I like it. And folks, you're going to see when you go on Dave's website that there is the opportunity there to buy the book. And of course, you can get it from Amazon as well. Dave, you've made a number of references to developments that were prior to your current location. I'm curious, when did you move to Nashville? Where did you move there from? And what prompted the move to Music City? I grew up in New York on Long Island and moved to Tennessee in 2005. And it was actually the right about Labor Day weekend of 2005. We, We hit Nashville the day after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. And I, at the time, had a deal with a record company in New Orleans. I had been going down there to play Hmm. and meeting a bunch of musicians in that part of the world. And so here this storm comes in and pretty much took out my label. Wow. And um, the whole sort of direction of things that had been moving had to change. And then there was the move on top of it. And I came to Nashville... Number one, to be in another musical community. Uh, I had been coming down here before. My first band was, well, country rock. But it was, it. let's put it this way, to Long Island, it was country. <laughs> People said, oh, that's country. And I'm like, you know, it's really not. <laughs> you know anything about country. But, you know, so I, I had this band called Jackalope Junction. And we were doing this sort of countrified Fleetwood Mac vibe with a lot of vocal harmony and multiple singers and, Hmm. you know, owes a lot to Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles. Um, But also a a lot of the people I grew up listening to would certainly fall into that country rock uh, vibe, or at least there's a relationship there. And um, so Nashville did make sense both as a musical center as a place where the music I was making might have a place. Yeah. Um, I got here and people told me I was playing jazz and blues. So (laughs) that's okay. Story of my life. I don't ever quite fit in Nashville. (laughs) But like I said before, Nashville is such a great community. And also the cost of living when we came here was so much lower than New York. Mm. And it it still is, although it's, you know, skyrocketing now. But um, it was so it was a good move on a variety of levels. And there was literally nowhere else to go. Like if we just wanted to get out of New York and land somewhere else, there was no compelling reason to go anyplace else. Yeah. The other yeah. place that was on the list was New Orleans, and that's we yeah. were, mind you, very <laughs> glad that we hadn't bought a house in New Orleans when For sure. For sure. When that's but while you're putting this timeline together for us, I read that you had a serious 
repetitive strain injury. Yes. What exactly is that? How severely were you impacted by it? How long was the recovery from it? And like I said, when in the timeline was that? That was finishing graduate school. So I completed a bachelor's and a master's degree in classical guitar performance, graduated from the Manhattan School of Music, and was intent on um, playing the classical guitar in whatever way that looked for me. I was writing music for that at the time. So there was the seed of the I want to be a composer thing. But the year I graduated, I decided I was going to enter a competition and this is the Guitar Foundation of America puts on this thing every year. And if you win it, you get a debut recital in Carnegie Hall. It's a big deal. Mm. It's a career making thing. So I spent months practicing about eight hours a day and come spring. So this is what winter of 93 into 94. I think there were 22 major snowstorms that year. I didn't Whoa. leave the house much. Whoa. I played guitar eight hours a day. By spring, I had so much pain in both hands that I could barely play. Mm. And basically what had happened was just overuse, just repetitive strain. And huh. it's something that many, many musicians deal with because you can imagine intense practicing with little muscles over and over again. And then you add to that that fundamental disconnect that can exist between the brain and the hands. Now, with a serious conservatory program, they are teaching you to be aware of this stuff. But eight, nine months of eight hours a day, you know, locked in a room, maybe that wasn't where my head was. Mm -hmm. But I stopped playing for about six months. And when I picked up a guitar again, I really had to decide, was I going to go back into the world I was in? Or was I going to pick up an electric guitar and start playing in bands again? Uh -huh. And I had never stopped. You know, getting back to the pick a lane thing, yeah. um, I don't know of a single successful guitarist in the classical world that does anything other than explore um, with experimenting in other places. There's a few. One of my uh, teachers, Ben Verdery, has always been a, a very open minded guy and he does duets with rappers. Hmm. So, I mean, he, he's not living in a bubble, but at the same time. None of these people are out there playing electric guitar in bands. Not really. Mm -hmm. And so one tends to live in one universe or another. And so I started playing in bands again. But I still wanted, I think I had this idea in my head of the kind of musician I was and wanted to be. And to a degree, it is it was kind of grandiose. <laughs> so stylistically, the the five albums I had made um, before I moved to Nashville, were already all over the map because mm. two were this country rock band. One was this kind of Baroque singer-songwriter thing that had some tracks with pedal steel and some with cello. <laughs> and then one was uh, was all instrumental um, electric guitar trio so in kind of light jazz. And so people were like, well, what do you do exactly? <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, and the repetitive strain thing has been, you know, kind of a shadow hanging over things for years. It's mm. the reason why I stopped the classical guitar. So when I picked it up at the beginning of the pandemic, I hadn't tried to play any of that music since 1994. Wow. 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 Hmm. Well, as we get set to wind this down, I do have to ask you to talk about some of the cool performance opportunities that you've had, and not the least mm. of which is having played the blues with Les Paul on a Manhattan nightclub stage. How in the world did that come to be? 
I was promoting my instrumental jazz album, and my publicist calls me up and says, listen, Les Paul does this Steady Monday Nights at Iridium, and um, I want you to go down there because I want you to meet him, but I also want you to meet Joey Reynolds, who is a radio guy. He's yeah. in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's one of the original DJs. He had this late-night, overnight show on WOR. He said, I'm going to book you on Joey's show. Huh. So I want you to go down there, and Joey will introduce you to Les. Wow. Okay, great. So here I was under the impression that I was walking in there and this had been set up because what do you hire a publicist for? Yeah. And I walk in and the first person I talked to was like, well, just just go in the back. He's back there. Well, I walk in and there's Les Paul sitting there eating Chinese food and no one else is there. And I said, Mr. Paul, it's a pleasure to meet you. So-and-so said I might be able to sit in. He looks at me. He's like, can you play? I said, yeah. He said, okay. So... We stayed for the show. Joey Reynolds never shows up. Huh. But we're sitting there, and Les at one point says, well, we got a kid here who says he can play. <laughs> <laughs> and he calls me up to the stage and said, what do you want to play? Ooh, okay, so I called a blues tune because I knew it would be an easy thing to do, and, and it was it was great. I mean, you can imagine just mm. how, much, yeah, how exciting that was. Oh and I found out later that if he didn't like you, he would just play over you. Ah, but he didn't. Wow! So that was huge. And the the punchline of this whole thing <laughs> is, I sent my publicist the picture of me and Les Paul. She's like, "You didn't get the money shot. Joey's not in it." I said, "No one cares about Joey." <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, he wasn't there. That's why he's not in the picture. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I did go on his show, and he was he was a great guy, and it was a, a, a pleasure. He's one of those like real overnight late night guys in those days. So, oh, how cool! You know, how cool. show up in the studio at two a.m. in the middle of the <laughs> Uh, so cool. We're going to close with another one of Dave's original songs, one called I Like What I See. Before I let you go and I play that track, Dave, share with the audience all about this one, if you would, please. I mentioned that I've had some ongoing uh, long-term songwriting relationships. This came from one of them. My co-writer is Jeff Walter, who's been very successful in the bluegrass world as a songwriter. And he and I have written probably about 15, maybe 20 songs over over the years. Um, he's one of these people that probably writes 200 songs a year. Uh-huh. Very, very prolific. And uh, this song, actually, we started off with the title. The working title was So Far So Good. Hmm. And we wrote the whole song. And... I basically forgot about it. I played played it for my wife, who will frequently I trust her opinions on things. She like she's like you know I like everything about it, but the hook. <laughs> and I kind of tabled it. Two years later, Jeff and I get together and we rewrote the entire song mm. with a new chorus, and it just clicked. It was like well, it wasn't working before, but it sure is working now, <laughs> and it's become one of my favorite songs to play because it's got a good positive message and because I can mean every word of it mm. when I sing it. There, there's no, I'm playing a character, I'm telling a made-up story. I mean, I can identify with every word, and that's what, you know, when you talk about wanting to sing songs that you can sing, 
it kind of begins and ends there, right? You have to sound like you mean it. Yeah, that's so much more believable than, well, I like this song, but I wrote it about a friend of mine. Actually, it was his brother, but the guy's a good buddy of mine, and so I was kind of <laughs> hearing secondhand what his brother was going through. It's like, yeah, you'll perform it, and the song will come across nicely, but it's nothing compared to what you're describing, where you are feeling and living that song every time you're performing it. Right. And of course, the magic in a great song is that the song can be about somebody you've never met and yet you feel everything there. But it's just it, it's also the particular period I was in my life when we wrote this song. It was very much like, you know what? I'm good with things now. <laughs> and that, you know, I, I, I spent my whole adult or I spent my whole uh, young life expecting to be a tortured artist when I grew up. Right. Because there's the there's the romance of it. So to be like, yeah. You know, I'm I'm okay here. I like what I see. I like it. I like it. Good stuff. Dave, this was so great. Thank you so much for making time to be on Now Here This Entertainment, and we'll be watching for your guitar course series later this year. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was a great conversation. My pleasure. My pleasure. And folks, with that, I will wrap up another new episode of Now Here This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to, not in this order, guitarist, songwriter, recording artist, and teacher, Dave Isaacs. Visit his official website, NashvilleGuitarGuru.com. Again, I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net. You heard Dave talk about his online guitar course series that he will be releasing this year. You will be able to access through the website I just gave you, so by all means, do plan to dive in with him on that once it is out. You also heard him talking about the in-person and the Zoom teaching that he does. Plus, look on his website as well for his book, which you heard him talking about today. Of course, do look for his original music on Apple Music and other online digital music retailers. He is on Spotify, so give him a follow on there. And look for links on NashvilleGuitarGuru.com to find Dave on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Do let Dave know that you heard him and his music on Now Hear This Entertainment. I do truly hope that you like this show, that you're enjoying what I'm doing every week on the Now Hear This Entertainment podcast. If you've made it all the way to the end, thank you for having stuck with Dave and I, and I'm going to assume that that means that you do like the podcast. You can take action to let me know that you appreciate the work that I do to keep making this show happen every week, every month, more than nine years without missing once by going on my podcast website, nhte.net, and then using the yellow Buy Me a Coffee logo that you will see there. This is not a sponsor. It's not affiliated with any brand or chain. It's just a fun way for you to send your support, your thanks to me, including a note that I will see when you utilize that option. You can also just head directly to buymeacoffee.com slash Bruce W. That's going to do it for episode 486. Thanks ever so much for listening. I'll send you out today with another song from Dave Isaacs. This is the one he just talked about. It's called I Like What I See. I wandered the desert I walked through the valley I've seen my share of dead ends and back alleys And I have been weak When temptation came calling 
but gotten back up every time I have fallen. I was searching for something that's just out of sight. Now I'm stepping into the light. I open my eyes. I like what I see. I'm not a slave. Somehow survived And now with you 